and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. Today, we're talking about Prohibition again. Specifically for me, in the Upper Peninsula. And that's kind of what this whole episode's on. Uh, Just because once I started writing it, I realized it was 11 pages. So... (laughs) (laughs) So the episode doesn't get too long. We're cutting it back. And that also means we're recording on an evening, which is much better than usual because we can drink then <laughs> as they're doing it. Not on a Sunday morning when we usually record. Yeah, I don't I don't think it would be the best idea to just drink a bottle of wine on like a Sunday at like nine, ten AM. I don't um, think that... <laughs> on the morning of the Lord get sloshed. I, I think I would judge myself. <laughs> Yeah, I would, I would judge myself too. So it's nice. We're, this time for this episode, we're recording on a Friday night. We're talking about Prohibition. I have a Prohibition-era cocktail that I made called a Lime Ricky. Uh, similar to a Gin Ricky, I suppose. Um, slightly similar to a Tom Collins, but lime. So. Yeah, and I have... Leelanau Cellars uh, Winter White Cherry Chill, which is honestly the best wine I have had in so long. Um, I bought this when I came up last for our grandmother's little thing that we did. Oh, the memorial? Yeah. When we did that, I, I bought like three bottles of wine and this is the one that I saved for last. So it's been months just chilling in my fridge. And I was like... What a better time to pull out my Michigan wine. And it beats out the wine that I found here at one of our wineries that is like 40 minutes down the road. I like their cherry wine. This tastes almost exactly like it, but better. And I didn't Michigan cherries. You can't beat those. So thank you, uh, Leland Aw Sellers, for uh, <laughs> Winter White Cherry Chill. I have the bottle next to me, along with my glass, and I may be refilling through this yeah. episode. And if you'd like to sponsor us, we'll start recording later so we can talk about the wine we're drinking. You know. Seriously, set me up. Like, that promo was free, but if you want any more, <laughs> you got to pay up in bottles of wine. Absolutely. Yeah, I've. Uh, if you hear any clinking, this is the ice in my glass and my metal straw. So you know, just a little. And and you might hear me pouring. You know, when my when my cup gets empty. <laughs> Hopefully, this doesn't turn into some weird ASMR session. <laughs> and now we're going to talk about prohibition. <laughs> Excuse me. Would you like to hear some clicking noises? <laughs> I mean, that would be so awkward. I'm sure there are ASMR podcasts, but I can't, I can't do it. I can't listen to that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how they do it. I'm trying. Especially when they start doing the noises. I hate it. Oh, drives me nuts. Drives me nuts. (laughs) Like, I don't want to listen to that. And I swear, flipping through TikTok all the time, I get on those ASMR things, and they're doing exactly that, or they're doing the nail tappy thing. I and I got talking, I got talking about the podcast at the most random 
probably inappropriate time today. <laughs> I was um, signing my my contract or ad- full admissions form over a Zoom meeting with my school with my upcoming school's um, admissions counselor, and th- that's it. I start a week from Monday, so woohoo, cosmetology school. But um, I was doing that and she didn't know if I could hear her because I I guess she saw my other headphones that I had on. And I was like, oh, sorry. Yeah, I've got a podcast. And then they're like, "Ooh, what's it about? And I was like, "Um, true crime and and murder in Michigan. (laughs) And they're like, really? And I guess they're like, oh, we'll have to listen. I'm like, goodness. (laughs) If you do, do, hi. Please. Please don't kick me out. I love you guys. <laughs> this does not represent the school. This represents me. I promise. <laughs> well, you didn't say the name. You're fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Should we get into it? Yes, ma'am. All right. So as we've said, or as I've said, we're back to talking about prohibition in Michigan, um, just for, with more detail this time, because I kind of skimmed over it as I was talking last week about the Purple Gang and their influence in Detroit. So this is more Upper Peninsula specific. Sources include the book Prohibition in the Upper Peninsula, Booze and Bootleggers on the Border by Russell M. Magnaghi. Why why did why is there always difficult names whenever <laughs> we're doing these podcasts? It's always I, I still can't tell you how to pronounce the guy's name that I'm gonna be doing next week. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> like I need phonetic spelling with last names, please. <laughs> and from an article in the mining journal. Michigan was not the first state to put prohibition in place. The state of Maine's legislature passed a law that prohibited the manufacture, sale, or keeping for sale of intoxicating liquors and set heavy penalties for violations in 1851. Michigan followed that example with a series of prohibition laws a few years later. In 1854, the Michigan State Legislature passed a prohibition law that was later declared invalid because of legal concerns. Then a year later, a law filled with loopholes was passed that made the Prohibition Law unenforceable, allowing 476 saloons, 23 breweries, and 6 distilleries to thrive in Detroit, while the ineffective Prohibition Law remained on the books until 1875. Later, there was a law that closed saloons on Election Day. But you know what? Like... Sometimes you need a drink on election day, you know what I mean? Right. (laughs) I mean, I know I definitely do. (laughs) Yeah, there have been some elections where I've been like, well, shit. I've been pretty lit on election days. Yeah. Either in celebration or because it goes bad. Like, I didn't know how it was going to turn out, so I just started drinking. (laughs) It was like, either way, it's going to be a night. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like either way these days, we we need a drink. Temperance groups wanted to bring an end to saloons and got a constitutional amendment on the ballot for an April 4th, 1887 vote to make Michigan a dry state. It failed, but was extremely close, with 362,775 total votes. That's the whole state. That's 
Hello. low population. Um, 50.8% were against prohibition and were known as wets. 49.2% were for prohibition and were known as dries. So you hear that language again, like the wets and the dries. The UP voted wet with 71%. (laughs) Uh Yeah. Yep, that sounds right. In 1891, in the UP, there were 566 saloons. And that topped out at 920 in 1909. Oh, wow. We like the bars up here. You know? <laughs> we like the alcohol. It's it, the Wild West. Not much else to do. You're surrounded by trees. What else do you have to do than go down to your little local saloon? <laughs> <laughs> it feels like up here, it's either like, you're drinking or you're praying. You're, you're one of the two. <laughs> Maybe both at the same time. Maybe. You never know. You know? You get into the church wine, you say a little prayer, you know. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. You know? Best of both worlds. <laughs> you, you, you know, gray A, thank you very much. Yeah, you, you gotta get the, <laughs> the accent around here. Yeah. Iron County was actually used as a model of the failure of prohibition. The county went dry in 1913, and within a year and a half, two-thirds of the people were voting wet because of the number of blind pigs and bootleggers, the largest amount of reported lawlessness and drunkenness in the county's history, the effort to enforce the law, and the loss of $14,000 in taxes. Oh, wow. Yeah. However, the general public didn't listen to that example later on. Of course not. Of course not. Because why? On November 7th, 1916, the people of Michigan voted for the constitutional amendment out of 638,132 votes. So there's an increase in population by then by quite a bit. 55.4 voted dry. So it uh, eked, eked over the line there. The dries in the Upper Peninsula carried 11 of the 15 counties, winning over 60% of the vote in six of the counties with large first and second generation immigrants. The Michigan legislature prohibited the sale of liquor in 1917, and prohibition went into effect on May 1st, 1918. On that day, hundreds of saloons throughout the Upper Peninsula were forced to close. Of those that didn't close or retire, some opened soft drink parlors, lunch counters, and billiard and pool halls. Later, the 18th Amendment was passed, followed by the National Prohibition Act, which gave the federal government power to enforce anti-alcohol laws. House Representative Andrew Volstead, a Republican from Minnesota. Oh, don't you know. <laughs> introduced the legislation to enforce the ban against production, transport, and sale of alcohol on June 27, 1919. The law, known as the Volstead Act, passed in the House of Representatives on July 22nd and passed a Senate vote on September 5th. President Woodrow Wilson vetoed the Volstead Act on October 27, 1919, However, his veto was overridden by Congress, and the Volstead Act went into effect on January 17th, 1920. So Wilson tried. 
he did his best. <laughs> he he's gave like, it a good go. He's like, guys, I know you're gung-ho about this, but maybe, maybe don't. And I will say, you know, sorry for everybody. Um, I'm, I'm a really big lightweight, and the more I jink, the more <laughs> pronounced my, uh, my northern accent becomes. So, you're welcome. <laughs> I think we might just do it more and more in this episode, since it's all about the oop. You know? <laughs> I, t- I try not to have an accent, but it still comes out. I've been noticing it because I, I finished this big glass already. Um, I'm going to have a problem. <laughs> Just drinking her like water. Yeah, don't let your kids listen to this episode, by the way. No. Or any of ours. In, any episode for that matter, please. Maybe don't. We talk about murder and things. So, <laughs> I mean, you're the parent, though. I don't give a shit what you do. <laughs> <laughs> not my circus, not my monkeys. Just don't blame me when they start saying fuck. <laughs> All right, where was I? All right, here we go. Well, the last episode was on the Purple Gang and Prohibition in Detroit. This is the story of Prohibition in the Upper Peninsula, which is a much wider topic. And as a warning, it'll be all over the place. If you couldn't tell already, it's going to hop around with dates and topics and it's it's already a mess. Maybe you should have a drink, too. We'll see. <laughs> so the first real prohibitionist in the UP was French Jesuit priest Etienne de Carrel. I'm guessing here. Sounds French. right to me. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's what we're going with. Um, who was stationed at St. Ignace. He wrote a report to the governor about conditions at Mission St. Ignace in late August 1702, noting that the brandy trade led to violence, that soldiers were keeping Indian women for their pleasure and monetary reward, and gambling and drinking done by um, British soldiers and fur traders set a terrible example and scandal for the Indians. And he had somewhat of a point. Um, but only because the soldiers were essentially pieces of shit known for breaking into people's houses and raping women, and it was chaos. Yeah. In the late 19th century, Finnish immigrants developed a temperance movement throughout the Upper Peninsula. The mining and timber companies were concerned about the consumption of liquor that was affecting the workforce. Timber companies did not allow liquor in their camps, and mining companies prohibited liquor in their company towns. Once again, the man was telling people how to live their lives. It's like, listen, guy, back off. I mean, I get if they're like, hey, lumber person, well, you're chopping down trees. You probably shouldn't be tipsy. Totally. I mean, yeah, totally get it. But when they're done at night. They've been working hard all day, you know. What else do you have to do? Exactly. Other temperance societies were developed. The St. Mary's Temperance Society was the first in the UP established by Reverend Bingham, followed by the Sons of Temperance at Sault Ste. Marie in 1850. Okay, so backing up here, or going forward, wherever we're out of that timeline, to after <laughs> probation was put in place. My timeline's all screwy now, I told you, it was going to be all over. 
I was I was trying to follow like the timing in the book and how things were put in order and sometimes it's just difficult to do that. And this is my second drink and you know. Just, uh... <laughs> All right. Although Michigan was now dry, our neighbor Wisconsin still had alcohol available until January 17th, 1920. So we took advantage of that neighborhood and uh, we stopped by for some neighborly visits. Hey guys, we like your cheese. Give us some liquor. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know, we had to trade them, but <laughs> our money. <laughs> we, yeah, right. We'll, we'll, we'll give you this cash. <laughs> Like, hey, good buddy, uh, you got the stuff. We don't. Can we come over to your house? <laughs> just just borrow a bottle or two. Yeah. You know, just be neighborly and uh, we'll ask how your family's doing and then you can just pass the bottles over. <laughs> and then we'll do the, the Michigan goodbye or the Midwest goodbye and we won't know how to leave. So we'll be there for a while. <laughs> We'll just, like, yeah, I gotta get going. But, you know, Sue, the other day, I saw her, and she said you were looking great. And then, oh, yeah, yeah, I gotta go do this. Oh, but before I leave, I gotta tell you. Oh, yeah, one other thing. What about this? Okay. (laughs) The the three access points, which the book calls the Avenues de Booze, which I thought was great. Were Marionette, Wisconsin, near Menominee, Florence, Wisconsin, near Iron Mountain, and Hurley, Wisconsin, near Ironwood. Trips across the border for liquor were made by both bootleggers and private citizens. State police tried to close off those access points, but even with the adding 16 men to the force, they had a hard time. Surprise. (laughs) Shocked. Yeah. People were arrested near the border and also pulled over far from the border in the Marquette and Copper Country areas, often with whiskey in their cars. My kind of car. <laughs> Just went for Why a drive. Drinking it while you're driving, you know. Just went for a drive. Somehow ended up in Wisconsin, and uh, I don't know how it ended up underneath my seat. My seat, you know. It's jumped in there. They must. Somebody must have snuck it in as a gift. <laughs> quite the gift <laughs> during prohibition it is estimated that there were nearly 200 saloons disguised as soda shops lining its downtown streets i saw that coming <laughs> yeah northern no pop shops yeah Here's the, we're just having some we're having some soda pops don't worry about us nothing going on here there's no jack in this coke don't yeah. don't you pay any attention I'm just being a good citizen with my pop. <laughs> oh, speaking of pop, I have Fago for later. I'm very excited. I got some red pop. <laughs> the best. Yeah. All right. I lost my place again. What am I doing? Northern Wisconsin became famous as a resort area beginning in the 1890s. And during Prohibition, attracted Chicago gangsters looking for a quiet place to relax as well as operate illegal gambling that would be away from the notice of the FBI. Hurley, Wisconsin, specifically became a favorite place, and for the Michigan State Police in 1921, Hurley was considered the wettest city in America. 
Congratulations, Harley. <laughs> Which reminds me, have you ever seen the maps of where it's like where the most bars in the United States are? And it's like just it's Wisconsin. It's like <laughs> so much of Wisconsin. So so much. I've heard they're they're they enjoy their alcohol quite a bit, so yeah. I guess things haven't changed. <laughs> and um and Hurley was this sounds this sounds dirty now that I'm looking at it like this. Hurley was so wet. <laughs> How was wet was she? <laughs> that federal enforcement agents were unable to bring it under control. Commander of the state police, Ray Vandercook, said Hurley was, let's quote, the booze headquarters for the upper country and was responsible for the greatest show of lawlessness in upper Michigan. Hurley is the rottenest town I have ever heard of, and I have my doubts about any prohibition enforcement. <laughs> he Sounds thought like he's cranky and needs a drink. Yeah, <laughs> he's real cranky. He thought that if Hurley could be cleaned up, Ironwood's criminal problems would be fixed. Because they're not going to go somewhere else. It's just... Right. On the bridge across the Montreal River between Hurley and Ironwood in 1920, enforcement agents and police were stopping every car crossing the border. The officers, who were recent veterans from World War I, were a bit too enthusiastic and attracted a crowd of Ironwood citizens who heckled them. The book says, quote, When the local constable arrived, the state police bypassed him, cracking heads and threatening the constable with, We'll get you. <laughs> a little much, they needed to calm down. Bring, bring it down, Notch. Mm -hmm. The incident was reported throughout the UP and was condemned by the editors of the Marquette Mining Journal the Ironwood Daily Globe, and other UP newspapers as an overreaction by the state police, who they said should be better trained to deal with the public. Big facts. Yeah. At the beginning of state prohibition, people had stored up liquor supplies. I totally get it. I would too. <laughs> you're, you're like, you're going to do what now? I need to go shopping. <laughs> give, give me a minute. I, 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 you're going to do it on Tuesday, right? Because it's like, it's Thursday now, so I've got all weekend mm -hmm. to just get my friends right. In July 1918, former bartender Emil Simonin of South Range, which is just south of Houghton, was one of those who had a supply. Police raided his home and hauled out 63 gallons of whiskey, 93 gallons of beer, 10 gallons of brandy, and a case of bitters. Now, here's where I'm annoyed with this law. If something was illegal... No. See? I'm backwards. If something was legal when you bought it, but then later becomes illegal, I think, like, that should be grandfathered in or something, as long yeah. as you're not, like, reselling it, and the fact that they can take something you legally purchased, and that 100%. you... you paid for just makes me mad like i got the receipt fam <laughs> yeah like it was legal when i got this and you know but i guess back then it was probably harder to track when you bought something yeah than it is today like today we've got you know debit cards and credit cards 
and all the ways that we can just pull up. Here's my bank account. Here's where I bought it, when I bought it. Yeah. Yep. But some wealthier individuals created basements filled with liquor purchased pre-prohibition. However, many liquor supplies were robbed over the years, leaving the owners with nothing to do about it because it's not like they could just report the theft right. of illegal alcohol to them. <laughs> the book also discussed a home that was built on the shore of Lake Superior, north of Marquette, near Big Bay, named Granoloma, that is now a National Historic Landmark and was the summer home of Lewis and Marie Kaufman. And I watched some videos on it. It's beautiful. Like, it's huge. Lewis was a successful banker in New York and Marquette. In 1919, he started construction of what is considered the largest log cabin in the world based on the Adirondack camp tradition. State prohibition began in May 1918, so while Kaufman was building, he constructed two side-by-side bank vaults with massive steel doors marked his and hers. Lewis and Marie bought an entire liquor store in New York City and had the contents shipped by rail to the site. Throughout Prohibition, their stash was used for parties they hosted for the rich and famous who would arrive by Kaufman's private rail car. Guests included celebrities such as Fred Astaire, Mary Pickford, Lionel Barrymore, George Gershwin, and Cole Porter. Wow. Yeah. And I actually think that, I don't know if that place is still for sale. So, you know, if you got a million bucks, you could have a massive uh, log mansion on Lake Superior. Please? <laughs> if I could get that million. Yeah. Um, I would like to purchase. <laughs> yeah. It might be more than that now. That was just like the video oh, I'm I sure. saw. Like, I'm it's sure. a million dollars. Because it, it was way more. And then the price went down. Um when this last guy bought it in like the 80s or 70s or whatever heck that was. Um, a little after a month after the start of Prohibition, an incident turned into what was later called the Rum Rebellion, which kind of sounds like pirates, and I'm digging it. Then, <laughs> at the center of the rebellion was Iron County, known for lumbering and mining with a lot of Italian and other immigrants. The Scalucci brothers owned a building in Iron River and made wine that was legal through a loophole in the Volstead Act. Scalucci. But because, yeah. Pretty but, sure I've heard that name. I don't know. But because of a large amount of grapes they needed to use, they made more than the 200 gallon limit. On February 14th, 1920, on Valentine's Day, the state police learned of the extra barrels and raided the Scalucci grocery store, seizing eight and a half barrels of wine. Because the officers did not have a warrant, prosecuting attorney Martin McDonough demanded the wine be returned. <laughs> Chicago-based Chief Major A.V. Dalrymple of the Prohibition Enforcement Agency said, Iron County is in open rebellion against Prohibition. That seems a little dramatic to me. <laughs> <laughs> a bit. A bit. Yeah. It's like open rebellion because they ate barrels of wine? Dude. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the like, horror. Calm down. <laughs> Chill a little. <laughs> 
Dalrymple headed to Iron River to end the so-called rebellion with armed agents to arrest the Scaluccis, McDonough, and Iron County officials. The drama. (laughs) The National Commissioner was able to step in to defuse the situation, but for over 10 days, the incident was in national newspapers. Wow. Yeah. So now I'm going to get into uh, moonshine. With the economy during Prohibition in the Upper Peninsula struggling, and with most people unable to purchase and store large amounts of booze, they needed a way to get some. Newspapers had ads saying things like, you shouldn't worry, make your own, with offers of a book of recipes for things like beer, whiskey, and wines, but was soon declared in violation of the law. (laughs) Aw, shucks. (laughs) Went after books. Shops started selling hops, barley syrups, and extracts, yeast, cornmeal, and other supplies. While it was illegal to openly promote homebrewing, major breweries, including Pabst and Anheuser-Busch, advertised barley extract and syrup in three-pound cans for use. I'm I'm doing air quotes here, podcast people, for baking and cooking. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is just cooking sherry. Yeah. You just, you're gonna, here's how you can cook some of this barley. And it'll make a very interesting soup. (laughs) A soup with no vegetables? (laughs) Yep. You just drink it from the bowl. The barley and hops and it comes out with a soup. Um, If you happen to leave it um, for a certain period of time, something might happen to it. And the um, the soup is best cold. Yeah, it'll still be fine to drink the soup. Make a lovely broth. (laughs) Winemaking was legal, but was limited to 200 gallons per household annually and was only supposed to be drunk by the family. Train cars continued to bring grapes to the UP. The federal government provided funding so that grape bricks of concentrated grape juice could be made and sent from California. Companies would ship the bricks with a warning on the side of the box saying... After dissolving the brick in a gallon of water, do not place the liquid in a jug away in the cupboard for 20 days, because then it would turn to wine. (laughs) Oh, no. Wink, wink. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) I certainly won't, sir. Yeah. And they even listed the the juice flavor um, that included burgundy port and sherry. Thousands of people across the U.S. and the Upper Peninsula started distilling, brewing, and making their own wines. Part of that was because the price of liquor brought in by bootleggers or rum runners from Canada was too expensive and also risky. Moonshine usually makes people think of the Appalachian area, but it can be made anywhere. Any information about early moonshining in the Upper Peninsula is unknown, but it's thought that the earliest distillers were French Canadians. The whole thing revolves around proper fermentation, and the process may be similar to other alcohols. And Italian immigrants would make a potent white liquor called grappa. I've tried it, and that shit is strong. Oh, I bet. <laughs> it's basically grape whiskey. Like, it's, it's some strong stuff. Woodchoppers who came from Kentucky before Prohibition 
brought their moonshine knowledge that they shared with locals. Because the UP is a heavily wooded area with a lot of swamps, with roads that in some places were basically trails or nearly impassable, there was plenty of room to hide stills. According to state officials, Delta County and the city of Escanaba were considered the wettest areas in the UP. Still, county sheriffs, state police, and the federal prohibition enforcement agents searched the forest for moonshine stills. In August 1923, the Delta County Sheriff and federal agents raided an operation 10 miles northeast of Rapid River. They found two stills with 200-gallon capacities that produce 75 gallons of moonshine daily. The distillers fled when they heard them coming and did not return, which I'm sure was a bummer to the police that waited all night for them to come back. Um, But they didn't get a stealth badge for that one. Like, they saw you coming. They left. They probably figured you'd wait there. So when they didn't come back, they destroyed everything that was left there. Stills were also found in basements in town. One man in Escanaba created a large cellar and two adjoining homes. Unfortunately, police smelled the fumes and raided the cellar. Oh, no. Guess seal up them cracks, you know? Um, Others built secret rooms in homes and barns to hide their operations. One barn in Brimley was so well hidden that it was only just discovered in the spring of 2015. Oh, wow, Brimley. (laughs) Yeah. That is funny. Yeah. Of all places, Brimley, Escanaba, like, such tiny towns, you wouldn't think. Well, you know, lots of woods. (laughs) Yeah. I want to, I really want to find an old, like, hidden still or speakeasy, like, a hidden room behind a bookshelf. I don't know. I don't know if they have them in Michigan. Um, I know I was watching a TikTok where they have old, like, and it's going to be hard for me to come up with words since I've been drinking, but <laughs> in, in old graveyards, they've got place marks that you think are just normal people's names on it. But if you look close enough, you see like the little studs on them, you can unscrew and the faceplate will come off, and the inside is hollow. No way! And people would put alcohol in there, screw it back up. The next person would come in, oh, leaving flowers for the dead, unscrew it, leave money, take the liquor, screw it back up, and leave. Genius. I was watching that from during Prohibition times. I was like, that's genius. Find one of those. See if there's still liquor in there. Dang, think of all the hiding places. There could just be bottles. I mean, I wouldn't drink it anywhere, but it would be cool to find. Right. <laughs> in Schoolcraft County, a man had a cabin on an island where he made his moonshine, which also a good idea because, you know, lots of lots of space. In 1923, the sanitation department of Escanaba and Ishpeming reported that the main sewers were so clogged with mash, they would have to be cleaned weekly. Skidaba's really pulling it in deep. <laughs> yeah, I t- this is not a surprise, this part, but most of the moonshine produced was not considered good quality. 
Yeah. I I mean, I've never heard of Michigan moonshine, so. <laughs> no. We never learned that trade too well, I guess. No, no. We did good with wines and beers, but that's about as far, probably. Mm-hmm. Um. However, there are some stories of gang members from Chicago and Detroit coming to the UP to place their stills. Suburbs of Calumet, where Italian and Slovenian immigrants lived, called Rambolt Town and Swede Town, made high-quality liquor. People would pay more for moonshine when told it's from Rambolt Town. Which, I guess, if they get their reputation there, and that's good. Mm-hmm. Moonshine was made in basements with windows covered with thick curtains and wives would sit and talk on the porch. When a new officer approached that had not been gifted, quote, quote, a bottle, the alert was given and production in the basement went silent. And since Mackinac and uh, I forgot to get the pronunciation for this one. Bois Blanc Islands. I'm, I'm gonna go with that one. Uh, we're somewhat Wait. isolated. They became How's it spelled? B-O-I-S. Yeah, Bois Blanc. Bois Blanc, yeah. So they became points for moonshining. At least three local moonshiners operated on Bois Blanc Island, as well as some from Kentucky. A.L. Todd had landed on the west side of the island and delivered moonshine to Mackinac underneath loads of firewood. And that was stored in a back storage room of Donnelly's Market, so it could be sold. In Harrisonville, a still was operated by the Justice of the Peace. (laughs) He did not agree with that law, I guess. And he was like, you know, I am the law. (laughs) (laughs) You will respect my authority. Drink Um, this liquor. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, sir. (laughs) Mackinac bootleggers bought their sugar and grain insignias. To those on Mackinac Island, prohibition had a negative effect on the island's economy. And with bars and taverns closed, people stopped coming during the summer. Many of the wealthy instead went to Canada where they could drink without fear of arrest. Unsurprisingly, as I've said this before, the moonshine wasn't the best quality. It was produced without government supervision and not overseen by someone who had been trained in how to make it. So to get an added kick, oh, this is so gross, some moonshiners would add manure, bleach, rubbing alcohol, paint thinner, urine, or other gross things. No, thank you. That's disgusting. <laughs> also, I'd while tra- rather be dry. <laughs> yeah. Also, while trying to turn it around quickly, they wouldn't distill it, the times needed to remove impurities so they wouldn't like try and purify it at all. Um, with faulty equipment and unsanitary conditions, the alcohol created was toxic and led to blindness and or death. In March 1920, a group of men went to Hilburg where Joseph Shepard showed up and sold his homemade moonshine. After drinking, the men became ill and all died over the weekend. The local and state police then went after Shepard for the charge of murder. Yikes. Um, And because even a small amount of alcohol could lead to arrest, bribes, or gifts 
were given to local and state police, federal agents, and coast guardsmen due to their poor pay and their the quick fix to look the other way. Because those that were for prohibition thought everyone would just fall in line, Congress underfunded enforcement of the amendment. Because of that, those enforcing the law were underpaid and more likely to accept bribes, and some agents would only make raids when there were too many complaints. So in other words, you know, keep it down, we won't have a problem. I don't right. want to deal with this. I don't want to do that paperwork. Yeah. And this doesn't even come close to the agents who would take advantage of their roles and use their power for their own benefit. Which, there was a bunch in the book. If you want to read any of those, I recommend it. There was a lot. Yeah. There's also a strong likelihood that Al Capone visited the Upper Peninsula due to its locations near Canada. It's said that Capone had a vacation home in Couderay, Wisconsin, and had seaplanes fly in booze from Canada. It's also said that Capone had a home in Escanaba. Just lots of stories of him, like, appearing all over the Upper Peninsula. Um, some people saying, like, they had him in their house for dinner. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah. They're well, also, that's quite a story. Yeah. There are also stories of sightings of Capone in Sault Ste. Marie and that he kept a boat that would carry liquor from Bashwana Bay to Whitefish Point and that would then be shipped to Chicago. And Whitefish Point is no, it's middle of nowhere. Still, it's kind of crazy. Right. Drugstores in December 1919 in Copper Country area stopped selling Hoffman Drops as gets into like ways people were trying to replace alcohol so they stopped selling them because people were buying them not because they were sick but because of the alcohol content jamaica ginger a medicine with 93 to 96 percent alcohol was mixed with water and used to make a cocktail called gingery and in early 1921 the federal government stepped in and made it only available by prescription and that's just two examples. There were more. There were more in the book of stuff that people would use. Wow. Including people drinking wood alcohol, which is the poisonous methanol. Big yikes. Yeah. Big yikes. And druggists could also dispense alcohol, but they had to have a physician's prescription. They had to be kept on files for two years and submit monthly reports. The prescription would cost $3 and the pint another $3. Physicians started leaving signed blank prescriptions with the pharmacist so they could fill them out as needed. <laughs> and a gallon of moonshine cost $4 while the pint would be 6 But with that, who knows what quality you're getting. Like I talked about before. Right. You get some literal shit moonshine. Yeah. On September 5th, 1927, the Habitual Criminal Law passed by the Michigan Legislature went into effect, providing judges with no discretion and applied to liquor violations. On the fourth offense, they were given automatic life sentences and were referred to as life for a pint or life for liquor. A life sentence for alcohol. Wow. Yeah. I'd say that I'm surprised... But 
some of the extents that the laws took, not just in Michigan, but all over the U.S. during that time was Crazy. quite something. Yeah. Uh, a man named Tony Popich from Manistique was the first person from the UP to be convicted because he had earlier convictions that went back to 1924. When Moonshine and Wine was found in his home, Judge Herbert W. Runnels had to sentence Popich to life in prison, and he was sent to Jackson. Like, the judge didn't even have a choice. It was his fourth offense. So it was automatic. Governor Fred Green opposed the law, and the legislature later modified the crimes to be included, which permitted Popich's release. So he eventually got out, thankfully. I was hoping so. Like, I didn't want the guy just sitting there. Yeah, it's crazy. When Prohibition started, 426 saloons that were active in the UP had to shut their doors. However, 12 soft drink shops expanded to 232. 64 billiard parlors increased to 115. And it's likely many of those sold alcohol. (laughs) Yeah, I'd I'd bet on it. (laughs) Yeah. In Calumet, speakeasies replaced saloons, of which there were three three to five per block. Soft drink shops would be on the first floor of a building, and speakeasies were in the basement. Other people got more creative. Edward A. Betts, a former Marquette police officer, opened a dry cleaners and press shop near the courthouse. Betts and son became one of the leading clothes cleaners in the area. He kept one of his children up front cleaning clothes, Someone would enter the shop with their coat. Betts would cut special pockets in the coat and fit in bottles of liquor he would get from run runners. The person would then leave with their coat again, except this time yeah, a little bit heavier than it was when they walked in. That's quite the idea. Yeah, so a former police officer was like, you know how I can make some money? Putting pockets in coats. And like near the courthouse, too, at the same time. He has some bowls. <laughs> some bowls. Right. Now I'm going to get into another area, which is the impact on women and youth. Surprisingly, prohibition had a positive impact on women, but not for any moral reason. Of course. Yeah. Before, women weren't allowed in saloons, but nothing but possible arrest stopped them from entering a speakeasy. Also, bootlegging and moonshining became a profitable way for women to make money because typically they were under less suspicion and got lighter sentencing. This didn't mean all women got away with it, but it wasn't as common. And women would act as spotters and sometimes even took the blame and went to jail so their husbands could continue to make money. Oh, wow. Yeah. Some widows operated stills or ran speakeasies as ways to make a better income. So, you know, and youth went a bit more wild with it. And there were a lot of, of course reports. they did. Of course they did. Yeah. There are a lot of reports of drunken teenagers on the street. However, the KKK complained about the breakdown of the morals of youth, which is ironic. So I kind of get some satisfaction. <laughs> to know that it just really bugged the hell out of the KKK. Yeah, like. Oh, we're so annoyed with these drinking youth. (laughs) Let's go assault some black people. That's fine. Right. Of course, that would... 
Oh my god. Makes a lot of sense. As Prohibition ended, people were sick of the restrictions and the cost to people's livelihoods, peace, and the actual cost of enforcement. An association against the Prohibition Amendment pamphlet said that between 1920 and 1931, $11 billion had been lost in federal tax revenues, while $310 million was spent on enforcement. So that was a lot of money between losing tax revenue and then having to pay people to stop people from drinking. In Sounds March, a bit ridiculous yeah. and tedious and unnecessary. So it was a lot of money to spend to then reverse it. Yeah. In March 1930, Ironwood Times editor C.E. Bennett said, Crime drinking to excess by school children, homes turned into saloons, poison liquor, a great contempt for all laws than ever in history, chiefly because the nation has learned contempt for one law and the upcoming generation is not disposed to differentiate. In December 1933, a reporter wrote that prohibition was the most vicious legal enactment ever attempted in this country and resulted in a tremendous increase in the drinking of liquor by women, even girls and boys, brought to the front the bootlegger who sold a terrible quantity, uh, a terrible quality of booze at high prices and used much of the large sums of money realized from the illegal traffic for the protection of criminals. In 1932, the people of Michigan approved the repeal of the state prohibition amendment, and on April 10, 1933, Michigan was the first state to ratify the 21st Amendment. By December 5th, repeal day, prohibition was over. However, of those breweries that had closed due to prohibition, few reopened. Damage was done, and those business owners did not have the capital to reopen. So... The best part, why I say it's the best part of the book of Prohibition in the Upper Peninsula is that the end of the book has some cocktail recipes from that time, uh, which was a nice surprise after reading all about Prohibition. And all of a sudden it was like, hey, here's some drink options. So that's where my Lime Ricky uh, recipe tonight was from. They had a lot of uh, interesting... There's a lot of gin. There's one called an anaconda that had uh, gin <laughs> or vodka, it Nicki Minaj? maple syrup. <laughs> My ending kind of don't want none unless you've got buns. <laughs> you do side bends or sit-ups, but please don't lose that butt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what else was in here? One, one thing it talked about a lot was the coffee royal. It's Strong, hot coffee, whiskey, or brandy with a lemon peel and sugar to taste. One thing in here that was weird, though, I'm not a fan of, but I don't like um, white Russians or anything like that. It's called a milk highball. Which, you know what? I like mixing with my alcohol some milk. <laughs> Eight Ew. ounces cold milk, one to two ounces whiskey or gin. No Thank you. <laughs> no, I don't even like eggnog. Ooh, that's a sin. Eggnog like, is so good. I don't like, think I've ever had the liquored version, though. I haven't either. Normal eggnog? So good. 
I don't know. I, I just can't. It's just weird flavored milk. I can't do it. But Don't mind me. I'm just dancing over just here. Dancing. There's the old-fashioned recipe, which I do love an old-fashioned. And then the there's the recipe for shot and beer, which is what you think it is. It's a whiskey a in, in beer. Kind of like, uh, yeah, real- like a um, Jägerbomb. But it's just like beer and whiskey. Yeah. It's like it's real creative with the cocktail recipe. Like, hey, I want a shot into beer. Um, just give them to me at the same time. Just all in Make one. it a thing. <laughs> yeah. Make it a thing. And there we go. That's what well, I have. I do know. <laughs> I'm surprised that they weren't like some really. It could have gone. Hmm, how do I want to word this? <laughs> Since I've been drinking, I'm like, how how do I say this without sounding silly? I will say one of the good things is that there wasn't as bad of, I guess some of the crackdowns weren't as bad as in other places. Because I know like in some of the really bigger cities, um, not necessarily in Michigan because I haven't heard much about Michigan, but um, some of the other places the governments were actually finding these stills and different places and they were going in, they were sending in a person like undercover who would put poison in the liquor and then like disappear. And then they would sell that liquor and people were dropping like flies. Yeah. And so I'm like, that is just, just to get like people to stop drinking. Oh, it's going to kill you. Yeah, because you're doing it. Yeah. What? And then, I mean, <laughs> the story of the one moonshiner that sold it and then four guys died. So. It's just, yeah. Apparently people up here were just doing that themselves on accident. <laughs> exactly. Drinking, uh, like, drinking methanol, you know. Yeah, you know, drinking cow poop. Cow poop So go get that. Water. That. Go go get that shit out the field. <laughs> yeah. I got, I got some use for it. <laughs> what? Is this for an added kick, you know? No, Dale. I don't think I'm going to go get the cow shit. Kiss my ass. <laughs> like, you're going to drink that now? No, get thank some, you. Get some fucking help, Dale. I'm yeah. not going to do that. <laughs> Listen, where is your wife? <laughs> Does she know what you're doing? Go tell Stella what you're doing and see what see the kind of look she gives you. She I'm gonna, gonna tell you tomorrow. I'm gonna tell your mom, Dale. <laughs> you can't be doing that. I'm gonna tell old Ruth. She's gonna come for your ass. Yep. She's gonna make you pick out a switch. <laughs> oh jeez. Yikes. Man. At least it was somewhat kind of funny in parts this time. <laughs> Normally everything is like so dark and depraved. Still a little bit of a downer. Yeah. There there were some down parts and obviously some bad parts. People dying, being put in jail. But there were some hilarious parts where you could be like, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, compared to the usual shtick of uh, lots of people being murdered. <laughs> On purpose. 
Yeah. Sometimes accidental alcohol uh, death is better than serial killers. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'd rather it be an accident. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I might need to make another one of these. This was delicious. Well, sorry, guys. Um, I don't know what I'm going to think when this uploads and I'm listening back to it. I will probably be like, so that's how I sound. Okay, I quit. <laughs> I, I, I think both of us went a little strong on the Midwest accent today. So, you know. Well, you know, and most of this bottle is gone. And I think that's my issue. And I should go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, though? Sometimes you just have the best night's sleep after a little, a little drink. Yeah, I'm... I'm the type of person that's usually dry, as they say in this story. I haven't drank in a few months. I might have one glass or one mixed drink. So this is like... I'm, oh, I'm giggling too hard now because I can't <laughs> say I'm, I'm wet. Because that's just... <laughs> that's wrong. You got that wop, Laura? <laughs> yep. Yeah, referring to oh, the wets the, and dries just doesn't sound right. The wag, these the days. wag, the what a the the wet ass glass. Yeah, <laughs> change it up. The wag. Cheers. Yeah. So on that note, stay safe out there. Yes, watch out for the crazies. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomptech.filmmusic.io.